we're going to have a lot of fun in this series. How many of you have had bad church experiences before in your life? Okay, some of you are just not going to talk about it right now. You're not there yet. This is therapy. For the next six or seven weeks, we're going to dig in. When I was a kid, one of my very favorite movies of all time was Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. Anybody remember the, the film with this guy? Not, not the creepy Johnny Depp version with the squirrels. That was like a plague. Um, this one was the best. And, and I literally wore out, burned up my bootleg VHS copy of this movie again and again and again. And I loved it. So much of it I loved. But I really loved the first scene that we actually get to meet Willy Wonka. Watch this. So the first time I saw that, I remember thinking exactly what I felt was the sense of, I don't know whether to trust this guy or be afraid of this guy. And then later in the movie, when it gets to the boat scene, are you with me? Some of you remember the creepy boat scene. Some of you haven't seen it. You need to go watch it. It's the, skip the boat scene. It's pretty crazy. So here's what I found out. As I was reading this week about Gene Wilder, he said that that, that scene was not in the original book. He wanted to put that scene in there. And he said it was really important to him because he said, from that time on in the movie, no one will know if I'm lying or telling the truth. So here's the thing. I've been a pastor for almost 17 years now. I've worked in five different churches in three different states, and in every one of those places, I've had meetings or moments where I find myself thinking, how do I describe the chaos that is the church? How do I describe this place that is at times beautiful and at times confusing and at times hurtful? I had a guy one time who demanded that I have the church open for him by like 6.30 in the morning on Sundays because he tithed to that church and he was the one responsible for paying the bills. It's a crazy place. I've had people where I, I thought they hated me for the years that I worked in their church and then when I announced that Carrie and I would be moving on or leaving, they suddenly wanted us to come to dinner and they were going to miss us so much and they were shedding tears and it's a crazy place. You've been hurt by the church. I've been hurt by the church. We've experienced the chaos that is the church. And I've always thought, how do I describe that? How do I understand what that is or help people understand how difficult it is to understand the church? And recently, I settled on this word, wonky. Now, just look at your neighbor, because we're going to say this word a lot this series. You just need to be comfortable saying this word. Just say wonky. It's going to sound funny. By the time we get through like seven or eight weeks of this, you're going to be like, I don't ever want to hear that word again. Here's what I thought. Wonka and wonky are not very much different. One letter, and I don't know if Charlie and the Chocolate Factory intended that to, uh, to happen or not, but here's what I know. The definition of wonky, if you look it up, here's what it is. It says crooked, off-center, or askew, or not functioning correctly. So when Gene Wilder says, I want to create this scene where people aren't going to know whether they should trust me from that point on, I think that's a perfect description of the church that we all understand today. The world around us doesn't know whether they can trust us. Do you remember what it was like when you crossed the line of faith and became a follower of Jesus Christ? For me, I was 12 years old. I was a, a week at church camp just outside of Fairmont. And I spent about four days listening to a speaker talk about Jesus. I spent time listening to the counselors pour into us and, and, and kind of love on us and, and spend time answering questions about God. And I remember at the end of that week, I heard the speaker talk, and we went to the campfire. And after the campfire, I went into the cabin, and I went up in this little balcony attic area, and I got down on my knees, and I remember praying, Jesus, would you come and live in my life? And I remember walking outside and feeling like I was seeing the world in a way that I had never seen before. 
because I was saved. And I didn't know what that meant at that point. I didn't have the theological language that now I've got a lot of seminary loans to, to understand what it meant. But I wanted it. Whatever had happened to me that week at camp, I wanted more of that. I felt like I had come to a point where over the next few years, church became my place. Youth group became my place. It felt like home. So before my senior year in high school, I went to South Africa for three weeks for a mission trip. And I remember being there in the streets of South Africa and God just clearly saying, I'm going to break your heart for the people around you. And that was the call for me to ministry, to become this thing that many of you are like shuddering about called a pastor. That was my place. And that was who I became. There's this Catholic activist named Dorothy Day, and she said this at one point. She said, Though she is a harlot at times, the church is our mother. Though she's a harlot, a prostitute of unfaithfulness to God's love, she's our mother. For the past 16 years of my life, as I've walked through this wonky world of church, I have felt that truth in the core of my bones, that the church can be this just unpredictable mess, but she's the mother See, I mean, the people of God are a beautiful thing. It's a people that are not necessarily church buildings, and I love the church. I love the people of God. I love when we gather and the presence of God enters in. I, I love the mission of God. I still wake up every single Sunday morning eager and privileged and honored to share with you the word of God. I feel better than Charlie Bucket getting that golden ticket. I got the golden ticket. Isn't it great? But I also know how deeply the church can cause pain. I would imagine that maybe you've experienced that. Or maybe you have friends that you've invited time and time and time again, and they simply won't come, not because of Jesus, but because of the church. They've been hurt by the church. I know my hurts. I know the inability at times that I have to trust others because of that. I know what it means to look for a spiritual mentor who doesn't show up. I know what it means to shed tears for the house. Of God, And I think this word wonky is perfect because the church is a lot of things. It is fun, it is beautiful, but it's also strange and hurtful. It's incredible. At times it's awkward like a middle schooler, amen? But wonky sums it up best. Crooked, off-center, askew, at times not functioning correctly. So if you're here for the first time, if you maybe saw something on Facebook that you were like, you're going to talk about hating the church? I'll be there. Then I'm so glad you came. I'm so glad you came, and I know it's not easy. I know if you've been hurt by the church, that it is hard to walk back in the doors of a church. And I want to be the first to say to you, I get it. It is super common today that as I'm scrolling through social media, the recognition that the church of Jesus does not stand in positive light happens all the time. Just this week, I was, I was scrolling again, and I saw that, that the, the sexual abuse scandal still sending shockwaves through the Catholic church it is just keeps coming. I watched a film preview telling the story about how fundamentalist Christians uh, were abusively trying to reorient a homosexual young man. I saw an article showing the results of a scholarly study that an entire denominational theological wing has a more accepting view of domestic abuse. We don't have to look far to see politicians at every side, every perspective, trying to co-opt the message of Jesus for their purposes. See, we, and I mean the church in this moment, are not standing in the best light now. When Dorothy, say, though she, Dorothy Day says, though she's a harlot, she's our mother, I get it. Because six years ago, I moved back here to start a brand new church because I was tired of being the one that was just cynical and just critical. Oftentimes, the highest criticism of the church is coming from Christians. Do you notice that? 
That's where it's coming from. The church is a harlotute, this prostitute of unfaithfulness to God, the lover who called her into existence. But the church is also my mother, and nobody gets to talk about my mom without me doing something about it. Amen? How many of you know that? So I was tired of complaining and having little to no ability or action to back up the criticism. So Carrie and I came back here and started a church. We left a secure job in a growing church and we moved back home to start something that we didn't know whether it would succeed or fail. And most of the time, if I'm really honest with you, which I'm going to be in this series, some of you are like, that's why I showed up, bleed. But if I'm honest, I feel like the decrepit Willy Wonka trying to hold myself up as your pastor. But at other times, I feel like I'm bringing joy to so many others because of the amazing beauty of how God works through his people, his body, the church. It's messy, it's imperfect, it's flawed, but it is still the greatest adventure I've ever been on. So for the next several weeks in this series, I want to give you a survival guide. We're building a survival guide here. At the end of this, you're going to have survival tips and tools to say, how do I keep loving Jesus and not kill the people of Jesus? How do I keep following Christ and not blow up the church? How do I keep following who Jesus has made me to be and not hate the people that he's called me to be with? That's what we're going to do. And my hope, my prayer in this series is simple, that over the course of that journey, if you're not a Christ follower, that you might find Jesus in spite of the church. And that if you are a Christ follower, you might say, you know what, I'm falling in love with his people too. Because here's the thing. No matter where you're coming from or where you are spiritually right now, If you fall in love with Jesus, then the church is your mother too. Because in reality, I don't want to give up on the church. I don't want to do that. I want to reimagine the church. You see, even in the movie, Willy Wonka was a little bit hard to trust. I'm telling you, that boat scene scarred me for life. But for the poor little outcast urchin boy, Charlie Bucket, it was worth every step of the journey to get to ride in the great glass elevator. That's the last sermon of the series. It's called The Great Glass Elevator. You got to show up to hear it. Charlie reimagined his world. And maybe as a people following Jesus, we could reimagine ours, the church. So that's all intro. Now the sermon starts. You can put me on the timer here. If you have a Bible, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Believe it or not, I'm going to get through four chapters of 1 Corinthians in about 20 minutes. We're going to see how we do. All right. Can we start, as you're turning to 1 Corinthians 1, can we just start with this common assumption? We have all had, or we all know someone who has had miserable church encounters, amen? We can say that, and oftentimes the misery of those experiences has come through the actions of men just like me, those odd, threatening creatures that you call the pastor, I read a story this week of someone who was new to a town, and she and her husband showed up to a church. They were visiting churches. You ever use that phrase? We're church shopping. I don't sell anything. Don't shop, okay? We're church shopping, and they showed up, and they kind of sat through the service, and they were getting ready to leave. And when they left, at the door was the pastor and a couple of the elders. And they said, oh, we got a couple greetings, and we're good, and we're going to... And the pastor said, well, we just want you to sign the guest register, Okay, we'll sign the guest register. Good, thank you. And now, if you would just put your address down. And they said, we don't really want to, but we're just kind of checking things out. We're new to town. This is great. We're going to kind of trying to be Christian polite. You know what I mean? 
Like anywhere else, we just walk out of Walmart. We're tired of this. We don't want to buy the goods. But there, we're trying to be Christian polite. And it went on for 10 minutes. And they finally got the, the address down. And then they started to leave. And they said, well, we just want to get a couple of things. And the husband elbowed the pastor out of the way, pushed his way out of the church. And they thought it was all over. However, in a few days, the mail started arriving from the church. And it was more than postcards inviting them back to a service. It was handwritten notes. We so enjoyed having you here. Thank you for being a part of our church community. Many of you are like, this is great. This is what should happen. The final note said, I didn't really get to know you, but we noticed your car and got your license plate on the way out. So we drove around town until we figured out where you lived and just wanted to welcome you to the community. Miserable church experiences. At one of the churches I worked in, I sat in a, this is therapy for me, by the way. I sat in a leadership meeting where we had been discussing for a couple months the split between the two worship services on Sunday morning. One service was a bit on the traditional side, and the other was much more modern and band-led. The new pastor had come in and started that service. He basically planted a church within a church. And what it had created was a division between the more traditional service and now the more progressive service. So the pastor wanted to lead the church toward the modern style and was just putting up with the older and more traditional service setting. And there was fighting. There was all this going on. So he walked into our staff meeting. He grabbed the dry erase board and he writes in really big letters, Operation colon all shucks. To which we were like, what's going on? And he said, here's what we're going to do. He said, everybody in this place, everybody in our families, we know we all have crazy Grandma Louise. Okay, he said, how do we treat Grandma Louise? Before we can answer, he said, we all shucks her. Okay, he said, when you show up to Thanksgiving dinner and Grandma Louise says something that doesn't make sense you don't agree with, you just, all shucks, it's Grandma. He said, Operation All Shucks is our attempt to move the first service more to where the second service needs to be. I went home that day and told my wife that he would not last the year as the pastor of the church. He was fired six weeks later. By the staff. <laughs> so if you're tracking confessions of a pastor during this series, by the way, you should. Here's the first one that I want to say to you. One of the wonkiest things about church world today continues to be the leadership of churches. It continues to be the pastors. Here's what I know to be true in this room. We all know someone who hates the church because of the leadership of the church. Have you heard this story? I don't go to that church because he's in charge. Let's be honest. Typically, it's a he. That's what tends to happen. You have friends. I have friends. Maybe it's been you. Maybe it's been me who have been hurt by their pastors. You have been hurt by pastors, probably even by me. I have been hurt by pastors. We wouldn't have to dig too deep to find those stories. Leaders, pastors, spiritual guides who have misused power, who have misspent money, who have morally failed, who have sacrificed their families for the sake of growing ministries, leaders who have held up standards of faith that they themselves couldn't abide by, leaders who didn't do enough or did too much or whatever. We've seen it happen and we've experienced it. And so for some, maybe it's you, maybe it's they, they check out of church because they're convinced that the leaders, the pastors are a bunch of hypocrites who are just trying, have you heard this, to get your money and keep the church growing. But there's also a flip side to this that I think is really important. So if we have the faulty, the morally failing, the hypocritical pastors, then we also have what I call tiger beat pastors. 
Does anybody remember the magazine Tiger Beat? Let's, let's bring that up. Anybody got these? Maybe you had a version of this. Maybe there's new versions of this. I, I think they're all on cell phones now because I don't see magazines ever. But do you guys, are you with me? Tiger Beat was a magazine founded in the 60s to capitalize on the sensation of teen pop stars and one-hit wonders for the sake of telling the gossip that's going on. One writer described the celebrities in these magazines, and I love this, as, quote, guys in their 20s singing la-la songs to 13-year-old girls. <laughs> it's perfect. So if we're starting with a conversation about leadership as one of the wonkiest parts of church life, we have to admit that, yes, there are hypocritical pastors leaders, but we also have to admit that often the people in the pews or the chairs put too much stock and fixation on their pastors as Tiger Beat church celebrities. I'm not saying it's the same fixation as teen girls have with rising pop stars, but I am saying that both of these things equate to low maturity levels of spirituality. That when it comes to our leaders and churches seems to permeate the lives of many Christians who make up churches today. Our fixation on pastor so-and-so as the theological expert who tells us what we should believe or gives us clear worldviews on every area of life is a problem if we're only consuming the leader's way of thinking without thinking for ourselves. So if we're going to build a survival guide for the wonky parts of the church, we have to come to a healthy and mature understanding of how we understand pastoral leadership. We have to come to grips with the faultiness of pastors. I feel a little naked even saying that. And with the faultiness of our expectations or assumptions about pastors. So I've got good news and bad news. Here's the good news. From day one, the church has always had leadership issues. That's good news. We are no worse now than the church was right after Jesus left the earth. They screwed it up from day one. Doesn't that make you feel good? Now there's bad news. We're still just as screwed up as the church has always been. Thousands of years later, we've not gotten any better. And I'm hopeful that while we've not gotten any better, that as we explore it honestly today, as we talk about, and I just want to share kind of some personal what it means, the pastoral vocation, what that looks like from a biblical perspective and some honesty about your own expectations, I'm hopeful that we might find some common ground to reimagine the church. So we're gonna jump in. I told you I'm gonna cover four chapters of 1 Corinthians in about now about 13 minutes. <laughs> Corinthians is a letter written by Paul. Paul was the great church planner, the great preacher, the great apostle who started these churches. And one of his most important churches was the church in the city of Corinth. And Corinth was kind of this eclectic, diverse metropolis. If you think like Los Angeles, Las Vegas, and New York City all put together, that was kind of Corinth. And Paul starts this church, and he starts, as he writes this 15-chapter book, he starts with the issues of leadership among the Corinthian pastors. Look at chapter 1, verse 10. Here's what he says. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, underline this, highlight this, circle this, that all of you agree with one another. Well, you just stopped the sermon here, couldn't we? In what you say, and that there be no divisions. Now, the word for divisions in Greek is schisma. Everybody say schisma. It's a great word. It's a word that we get schism from. That there be no divisions among you, that, that you be perfectly united in mind and thought, that you would be connected at every level. And then he says this, and I love this part, because somebody's been texting Paul. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. I got the message. I saw it on Facebook. You called each other out. You blasted each other publicly. You posted a passive-aggressive Instagram feed. Whatever it is, there's quarrels. 
And then he says this, what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still the other, more holy, perfect, I follow Jesus Christ. In this book, Paul will address 11 different issues. Ten of them are not theological in nature. They are simply stupid things that the church is doing. Like we're going to get, one week we're calling it food and sex. Because at one point he says, you're having sex with family members. Stop it. This is the stuff that he's dealing with. This is the wonkiness that is the church. He says, listen, there are not theological issues. There are real life issues. And the first of them is leadership and quarrels. Because here's what's happening in the city of Corinth. The popular sport of their day was they had great oratorical speakers who went around the city speaking. And they would give speeches and they would perform their speeches and they, because they didn't have social media and entertainment and mass pop culture, they would, as they spoke, they would be celebrated by the people. And the people would say, well, I like the way he preaches and speaks better. I like the way she speaks and preaches better. And I'll follow him and I'll follow her. And what those people became were their patrons. It was, at the best, their version of Tiger Beat. This was their Tiger Beat. I follow him, I follow her, they're the best speaker, they're the best performer. And Paul says, don't bring that junk into the church. Don't get divided on this. He goes on in verse 13, he says this, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Then he kind of was like, oh, I remembered. He says, yeah, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not, now check this out. This is the apostle Paul. Not with wisdom and eloquence. I should just stop preaching now if Paul doesn't think he had wisdom or eloquence. Not with that, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He says, if it's all about me, you're gonna lose sight of Jesus. Now, I like this because Paul's ranting. I think he's calling out the missed attention of these believers. He's redirecting them back to Jesus, not himself, and he's directly combating their worship of wisdom, eloquence, tiger beat, preaching, to say, you're missing the point. So this brings me to my first point. This is our first survival guide point. If you want to survive the church, here's the first thing. Focus on Jesus more than your pastor. If you want to survive the pain that is the church, if you want to stop being hurt by the church, if you want to get through life following Jesus and not hating the church, focus on Jesus more than your pastor. Because it has never been about your pastor. Isaiah 53 says this actually about Jesus. This is mind-blowing to me. This is the prophecy of the Messiah. It says, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. This prophet says when it comes to the Savior, it's about what God wants to do. It's about the hope of the gospel. It's not about looks, appearance, coolness, how many books you write, how many Facebook followers you have. It's about who Jesus is in your life. And so that's so important to understand that when it comes to your pastors, your spiritual leaders, we exist to point you to Jesus, not to be the end gate. Not to be the place where you get Jesus. We are redirecting you towards Jesus. Paul goes on in chapter two to share his own story of leadership. Here's what he says in verse one. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. What he's saying is this. I'm not like all those people out on the streets in Corinth. 
I got something better than just chasing your patronage. I'm not trying to get you to buy my magazines. He said, I've got something better than that. And he says, verse two, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. Can you imagine Paul? Fear and trembling? My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. You know what I wonder today? I wonder if we would go to Paul's church. I wonder if Paul's church would be cool enough for us to go to. I wonder if Paul's church would have the right type of music. I wonder if it would be out-of-tune choir ladies leading the worship. I wonder if their youth ministry program would be progressive enough. I wonder if their kids' ministry program would have enough volunteers that everybody was happy Because you know what? It's incredibly difficult today to promote a real life, on the ground, relational based church in an era of podcast connections. Podcasts have killed me in my preaching, by the way. Can I just say that to you? I used to get such good material from preachers you didn't know about. Now you're all knowing about them. See, I wonder. Paul says, I didn't come with eloquence or wisdom or power, I came simply. With Jesus. I know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is the second point I want you to understand. When it comes to your spiritual leaders, your spiritual guides, listen, don't ever miss this. Whether you stay at our church or you end up somewhere else, every pastoral leader, every spiritual leader has a story. And any leader who forgets their story is not worthy of leading. See, I want you to understand this tension that when it comes to your spiritual guides, your mentors, your pastors, the people that are leading you, when it comes to the leadership of a church, every leader has a story. There are stories of brokenness and pain, stories of hurt and anger, but there's also stories of joys and hopes and dreams. Don't forget that your leader has a story. My story, my mom would tell you, is that I don't know how old I was, probably like 15, but she would tell you that I would hide behind her because I was so shy. Right, that I was so uncertain, and, and, and I remember that. I remember the, like, the most painful place in my life. Some of you had this experience. Middle school cafeteria. Whew. Where am I going to sit? Can I sit with the cool crowd? You know, who's the cool crowd? What is it? That's, that's the inner dialogue, and here's my story. That hasn't gone away. <laughs> that doesn't happen. I still struggle sitting in a room where the decisions of the church, everybody's looking at me, and I'm going, well, I don't know what to do. See, I have a story, but you have a story too. Do you understand your story? And I want to say to you, if you're in a place where you're being led spiritually by someone who has forgotten the humility of their story, they're not worthy of leading you. If all you get from them is this perspective of perfect spirituality and no struggles, the hashtag blessed preachers, like if that's all you're getting, then they're not worthy of leading. And see, I think this tension of understanding leaders have a story and the, and the leader has to lead humbly with the story brings us to this point to say to you, maybe what you're looking for from your pastor, from your spiritual leaders, is something they can't give you. Maybe their story has not put that in them to be able to offer that to you, and maybe you're never meant to get it from them. Maybe what you're looking for can only come from Jesus. We have to understand this. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Paul goes on, he says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you. This is my favorite part of the whole sermon, by the way. So just hang in there. This is going to be fun. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there's jealousy and quarreling, I'm so glad we don't struggle with any of those things. For since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? 
Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? So I hope you're recognizing the severity of what Paul's confronting. This is three chapters into his letter, and he's calling out this division over leaders. I'm going to break this down for you with a story. This is my favorite part. Here's the reality. Okay? In a church one day, listening to somebody preach, there's a lady on the second row, or first, second row. She's a mom. Okay? Three or four-year-old, probably, probably a little bit older. That's what I thought, but I think it was probably four or five-year-old kid comes walking down the aisle as the preacher is going, praise God it wasn't me, because I would have just been like, seriously? The kid walks up to his mom and goes, mommy, I'm hungry. Audibly, audibly. Mom proceeds to nurse the four, probably five-year-old kid from the front row of the church. Awkward at this point. This is a perfect example of what Paul's getting at. I'm going to tell you why. Paul's saying, you're acting like adults who are still trying to nurse. Stop it. Much of the leadership issues in the church, listen, I want you to understand this. If you've been hurt by a pastor, I don't doubt that. There are hypocritical, there are faulty, there are broken pastors. I may be the chief of them. But I also want you to understand the tiger beat culture that we live in says that many of the leadership issues in the church have less to do with spiritual authority and more to do with spiritual maturity. Some of you want to spiritually nurse from a pastor when you're invited to dine with a king. Can I say that again and maybe one of you will amen this because I thought that was, I thought that was truth. Some of you, it's too late. Some of you want to nurse spiritually from a pastor when you've been invited by the king of the universe to sit down and have steak. Thank you. You're looking for someone to come alongside of you and say, well, here's what Jesus wants. It's Jack Handy from Saturday Night Live. You're good enough. You're smart enough. Doggone it. People like you. And Jesus is going, will you come to supper with me? We're missing. It's not about spiritual authority. It's about spiritual maturity. Can I just say this to you? If you're going to leave our church, I want you to understand this. I want you to hear this as transparently as you can. I would love to sit down and talk with you about it. I'm not going to hit you. I'm not going to be mad at you. You know what I'm going to feel? I'm going to feel sad, and we're going to miss you because it hurts. It hurts when people practice, and I just got to call this out, when they practice immaturity and they leave a community of faith without communicating to the community of faith. Can I say it this way? If you're leaving a church because you like what you're seeing here, what you're experiencing here, we love that, but talk to your pastor first. Practice the spiritual maturity. In our early days, the first couple years, I remember we were getting the gypsy Christians. You know what I'm talking about? You don't. They're the ones that they get tired because they're not being spiritually fed at the church, even though they're already spiritually overweight. (laughs) Buffet isn't filling them up anymore, and so they're going. They're gypsy Christianing to every other church in the community, and we were the hot thing on the block. They were the early adapters. We're going to come in, we're going to check in, and I would call. If I found out, oh, we used to go to this church, we used to go to this church, I would call the pastor and be like, hey, I just want you to know so-and-so are here. We love them, but I'm happy to tell them they need to go back and communicate with you. Many of you didn't know that. But I was caught, most of the time the pastors were like, no, it's good, keep them. (laughs) That's typically the response that I got. I'm not, that's a true story. Because spiritual maturity was not existing. Spiritual immaturity happens when triangles occur in our church. You know what I mean by triangles? I got a problem with so-and-so, but I'm gonna text so-and-so instead of going to so-and-so. I'm gonna, some from Chloe's household have told me, why didn't Chloe's household go talk to them? See, we create triangles. This is spiritual immaturity. 
I believe the majority of divisions among churches, now listen, don't hear this wrong, the majority of divisions between churches are absolutely unnecessary and directly related to spiritual immaturity. Some divisions are necessary. There are theological things that we hold true that other churches would not. That doesn't make them bad churches. That means we've landed in different places. But a majority of divisions are not necessary. And Paul's calling it out. Stop trying to nurse from a pastor when you're called to dine with the king. Somebody put that on social media today because that's tiger beat worthy. Here we go. Chapter three, verse five. Here's what he goes on. What after all is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, he says. Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants, the one who waters have one purpose and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. Paul says one of us plants, one of us waters. He says, I'm not a good waterer. I'm not a good planter. He says, we gotta do what God has wired us to do, but God is responsible for making us, making it grow. So you could say this biblically, pastoral leaders are co-workers and servants, not authoritarian rulers. That means pastoral leaders should lead with humility, not with authority. I wanna say this to you. The idea of leadership in the church is it, it should be counter to every other concept of leadership in the world because it's rooted in humility. It's rooted in service. It's rooted in serving God and pouring, emptying ourselves for that. Can I just say to you, if you've been in a church where the, the, the pastor was the spiritual authority surrounded by yes men, yes women, then you have missed a biblical model of what church leadership should be. That's not biblical. He goes on, verse 21. He just kind of lets loose. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. He says, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you're of Christ and Christ is of God. He looks at the church. He says, knock it off. All things are yours. And that phrase, I read that and I went, what, is that, what does that really mean? Here's what I think. You remember when you were a kid on the elementary playground and you got in that conversation about whose dad was tougher? Remember that conversation? Some of you are like, I still have that conversation. My dad can beat your dad up. I believe you. We don't have to argue, okay? But in that conversation, we started, well, my dad can take your dad. My dad's got big muscles. My dad's got bigger muscles. We've got that whole conversation going. Here's what I hope and pray. None of us are having that conversation when we're 45 years old. Some of you are like, well, no, but my dad really, he's, he's pretty tough. None of us have that. None of us have that at the funeral of our father's. Because at the funeral of our fathers, I walk in and I don't start arguing with you about the value that your dad created in your life. Instead, I say, what did he teach you? What did you learn from him? Because all things are mine, I'd like to learn from your dad. And you say, what did your dad teach you? Because all things are yours. Paul says, this maturity thing is killing you. All things are yours. Stop worrying about the division. Don't worry about that stuff because all things are yours. He says, you're not gonna get your news media from Tiger Beat. Stop living immature faith. Let all things be yours. If you're growing in Christ, let it happen. Please listen to me. Understand this. Please hear this well. If you're a part of new community, if this is your church home, don't ever feel the need to defend us as a church. Please don't get caught in that game. Don't get sucked into the arguments about what we believe doctrinally, politically, ethically, socially. Don't get caught in those things. Please don't get caught in how it compares to other churches. And especially don't do it around those who are not following Christ. You know what the worst thing in the world is? 
when Christians are arguing with each other with non-Christians standing right beside them going, oh yeah, Jesus is love, this is great. Don't do that. Don't feel that need. I love every one of you deeply, but I don't need you to defend me. God's big. He'll take care of me. He'll take care of our church. If someone is growing spiritually in Christ at the King James only Baptist church, let it be. All things are yours. If someone is growing spiritually at the church that worships in a way that you're uncomfortable with or you're bored by, let it be. If someone is being discipled to follow Jesus and make other disciples in whatever context, let it be. But here's the flip side of this, and I hope you hear this as me speaking about us just as much as I would any other ministry. If your spiritual leaders, if your spiritual pastors aren't helping you mature as a disciple who makes disciples, you need new spiritual leaders. I want you to understand that. I want you to grab onto that because that's the calling to serve Christ, to help others grow in Christ. If that's not happening, you need to get out. You need to get out and move on and take responsibility for your own discipleship. I'm convinced, I'm absolutely convinced that one of the plagues over our Appalachian culture, our West Virginia region, is that we have misunderstood spiritual leadership to mean that if the pastor says it, I gotta believe it. I think we've equated that to good faithfulness. Well, the pastor, preacher so-and-so said it. I believe it. I've heard preacher so-and-so say other things that are stupid. I've said stupid stuff. And you think that that's discipleship. And what has resulted is a world of shallow disciples who believe in Jesus so you can go to heaven in the future but do nothing with your faith in the present. All things are yours. So take control of your spiritual discipleship and go after it. One more passage, verse one of chapter four, then I'm gonna wrap up. This then, Paul comes to a conclusion. This is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. You've been hurt by spiritually abusive leaders. You've been hurt by authoritarian leaders. You've seen misappropriation, misuse of power, moral failure. He says, this is how you need to regard us as servants of Christ and those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Listen, I wanna just tell you, this is my own story. I've always struggled with this label pastor, especially with the people that think that's my first name before my first name. Are you with me? Pastor Justin, Pastor Justin, how are you today? Pastor Justin, I've always struggled with that, and I am thank you as a church for not always referencing me that way because there are other titles I would pick first. Like, I'd rather you be like, Daddy Justin, how you doing? <laughs> I like that title a lot. Husband Justin, how are you doing? I don't know if Carrie would like that, but I like that. Some of you do see me that way, and I want you to understand, I'm okay with that because over the years, God has especially in this congregation at New Community, I'm understanding more of what that word means. See, what I wrestle with the word pastor is not what a pastor is called to be. It's what I had always seen a pastor portrayed as. That's where I struggled. I've struggled with the spiritual abuse, with the authoritarian approach to leadership, with the, the unhealthy workaholics that sacrifice their family on the altar of ministry. That's what I've struggled with. But the real call to pastor, the real meaning is right here in this verse. Paul says, we, are, we should be regarded as this. First of all, servants of Christ. If I'm a pastor, I'm called to serve. I like that. I want to do that. It's a privilege to serve you, an honor to try, even though I fail, to pour myself out for you. It is a gift. 
And then he says, we've been entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now, don't misunderstand this. This is not Paul saying, we've got secret knowledge that we get to tell you. There's no secret knowledge. 